Welcome to Disrupt Disruption, a series of intimate interviews with global thought leaders and practitioners operating at the intersection of business, leadership and technology. We're discussing all things innovation and disruption and how to not only survive but thrive in these times of exponentially accelerating change. Trusted by CEOs, founders and leaders globally for the latest take on business models, methods, culture and leadership, we cut to the chase, debunk the hype and get real. You're in great company. I'm your host, Pascal Finette, co-founder of Be Radical. Hey, everybody, it's Pascal again. We have another episode of Disrupt Disruption. I am here with a dear friend of mine, Christina Nisheva. Storied career in the healthcare space, a long time over at GlaxoSmithKline, then went to a GlaxoSmithKline backed and funded company called Vive Healthcare, focusing on HIV. So one of the probably hardest problems we can tackle in the healthcare space also, author of a wonderful book, uh, The Entrepreneur's Battle Book. Highly recommend this if you have any interest in the entrepreneurship world and or an entrepreneur. It's a really down-to-earth book on how do you actually do this whole entrepreneurship and how do you win the battle with yourself. That being said, I am super stoked to talk to you, Christina, today about disruption. And you bring a very interesting perspective, which is you operated most of your career, all of your career, in a highly regulated industry. So clearly very different uh, than other mm. conversations we had with more of the tech startup world. Let me start with the first question. How do you define these terms, disruption and innovation? Because they get thrown around so much that I think they've become somewhat toothless for most of us. First of all, thank you, Pascal, for having me because that, I mean, I love talking to you always. Give me so much energy and food, food for thought. Yeah, disruption. I like how you say that it's become a tough word and it's a little bit like innovation starts to be meaningless. And the way I think about it is actually anything that renders your assumptions no longer valid. So such a change to the status quo that whatever thought was possible, was not possible, is actually possible. So your underlying assumptions don't apply any longer. So that's probably kind of level of abstraction. But what I mean, what I mean by that is if we think the, the world operates in a different way, for example, with the pandemic, we thought we can't work at home or a lot of the industries, all of a sudden, you see it, you have to work from home. And this is the same in the healthcare industry. No one was uh, accepting the fact that they can switch to uh, video consultations, telehealth the risk benefits and so on, they would talk. But actually with an event like that, their assumptions of what's possible, what's not possible, just disappeared over, overnight. There are all sorts of, like Christensen defines it in a very different way, which I think it, it sounds a bit narrow in terms of having a smaller company successfully challenging a larger established player in the industry. And maybe if I dig, down we will come to his definition he's researched it properly but i was for me it's really are my assumptions still valid and if they're not then it's yeah for me disruption in that context do you think it's something which is primarily externally driven so we talked about covid the external covid shock or is it something you can be planful about and actually drive yourself I mean, COVID is an extreme, so that's an external event. And although we've had warning signals, uh, we chose to ignore them. 
I, I think in most of the cases when we talk about disruption, we talk about either something that's technology driven, something that they're early signals, something to give you an idea of it's possible, something like this to, to happen. So I don't think you can plan for it, but I think you can be in the game and prepare in order to respond or and or actually influence how things emerge. What I mean by, by that is it's difficult to predict the future. We know that. But um, if we are engaging with those emerging early signals, if we are thinking, even thinking about them, and in terms of what it means for us, for our business, for our organization, the signals are very, very weak and we may not be paying attention to them. But then all of a sudden, we see them and by that time it's too late. So I don't think you can plan for it, but you have to have a system and you have to be in the game in order to have a chance of, of responding. How did you do this practically? Um, how do you stay in the game? I don't think we've been disruptive. The area where I played was more on the commercial digital health type rather than on the R&D side. And on the R&D side, you can be truly disruptive by applying some technologies, but then you can also be incredibly late because, of course, everything needs to be tested exactly because you're in a regulated environment. But for me, the thing was, of course, do, do, just horizon scanning, knowing what's happening, what's what's emerging, and trying to identify those signals that we think are sufficiently promising and they can lead to something, which of course means that we had to be much more open-minded in terms of their impact and not to be concerned about the current business in a way. Because if you become too concerned about the current business, then you will miss. You miss things either because you want to protect the current business or thinking with your current business in mind, you will think that the new thing is too risky and not proven, and why should we, let's wait, we'll buy ourselves later, we'll buy uh, our place in the game later. And I think this is one of the most tricky thing uh, to understand is that you need to have this way of identifying your fundamental assumptions. So my goal was to get this on the leadership agenda. So if this business fail, why would it fail? Oh, regardless of the fact that we're an established business, what else could dramatically change our environment? And then what can we do about it so that we are prepared? So for example, fundamentally pharma is about delivering new medicines and and. If we do that, the chances are we will succeed. But at the same time, the new medicines, while you have some that are game changers, not all of them are game changers. They still have their values, but not all of them will be hepatitis C. A couple of few years ago, a first cure for hepatitis C, game changer, people will buy it. You don't need to promote it. But in other cases, very soon, actually, and someone will challenge you. So you need to be thinking about how your healthcare system is changing and how the decisions about what medicine to prescribe, which are the right patients to prescribe it, how those decisions are being made. And in healthcare, we're seeing this tremendous change of the way physicians, providers operate, the use of data, knowing much more about the patient. So if you are a pharma company and you're doing nothing about it, you risk at some point that you won't have access to this data. And then you can't control your 
price because they will have more data than you do. So in practice, it's really scanning the horizon, thinking about what things I do need to have in place and then thinking of services uh, that would be valuable for the patients and providers now, but also allow us the right to have, let's say, access to this data or direct communications with certain populations that will kind of protect us or change the way, in my case, HIV is treated. I wonder how do you think about or operate in in the commercial world, this is idea around the core and the edge, whatever terms you want to use, but the core of your business, the edge is the time horizon to maybe R&D looking out into the world. And this is ongoing debate about some people say you can't actually do core and edge together. Edge needs to be truly edge and then it becomes eventually the new core. Other people say that's, uh, pardon my language, horse shit. They need to be closely tied together and interact with each other. Otherwise, nothing happens and you've got this interesting immune system response. How do you think about that? And how, probably what did you see work? I'm of the, of the belief that you have to, to be able to do both uh, simultaneously as a business. And whether they're close together or not, I think it depends on the thing. My unit was venture building studio. So we were creating businesses. They work here and now, but with the potential to deliver also value in the future with regards to the future pipeline. And then the question I would get, a similar version was, oh, how would we scale this? How would we uh, fold it into the main business? And for me, this is actually a continuum. In some cases, you don't need the main business. The thing that you're creating will create value and doesn't need anyone from the main business to support it. And for example, one of the services that we have in Germany is an HIV and um, other sexually transmitted infections testing and counseling service. It's an online subscription. So in this case, you don't need the main business. This is a standalone service and there are synergies that you can use. I can scale that entirely differently. In other cases, you, you will need to get it into the main. So it's an, on a continuum. And the same way, I think, with the things that are on the edge and on the, I think the business, you, you do need to know which of those of your portfolio of projects, which are those that are uh, solving problems now and they're more like accelerating the business and which are about building new strategic capabilities. And those that are building new strategic capabilities, I don't necessarily see them linked within the current business. However, at the very top, this is my belief that the new environment calls for CEOs and leadership teams to be able to operate in this two-track environment where one is doing the, what it might be and the other is focusing on here and now. And maybe if you put it exponentially in the future, actually you might think about is the role of the business to be a venture building machine within certain thesis, within certain problems to be solved or jobs to be done space? There's a train of thought which basically says that companies ought to be acknowledging their strength. And typically when you look at a large corporation, you know, in most or any industry, they're really good at churning out as many widgets as possible at the lowest common price, mm -hmm. you know, efficiency, effectiveness, optimization. Whereas if you look at the startup space, they're really good at increasing the rate of learning, doing all these uh, quick iterations, these experiments, mm -hmm. these prototypes, etc. Do you think that 
large corporations actually can adopt this or is it probably more useful for them to acknowledge the fact that they are good at taking something and scaling it up and thus rather become a merger and acquisition business when they want to think about innovation or disruption? Yeah, on a good day, I think it's possible. Or let's say I was thinking, <laughs> I was very much hoping and believing that's possible. On a bad day, I was like, yeah, just give the money to the shareholders and I mean, maintain the business as much as you can. Of course, I'm not saying killing the business. I'm just saying, yeah, stay and run it the way you see it and then anything extra. If I was starting a company now and the company, and I want to run it, so not just sell it and then go somewhere, but I want to grow it and run it. I will be very much thinking about this in terms of the culture, the system, the, how I define my business and is my business to create other businesses, again, within certain sphere and leveraging the strengths, just making the risking the startup a, a bit in the, the startup process by leveraging the position. I think probably if I look, Amazon is doing something very, very, very similar. I think for the incumbents where the culture is very different, then this question starts to be a very pertinent one. Is it easier for them to buy? But then even with the buying I think, you again, unless you have a cash machine, you have a lot of money. I mean, the price goes up, the, the more the, it has been the risk and you may not be able to buy it. So I think it has to be a strategic conversation in the boardroom, exactly how we define the business and do we want to buy our way in or not or enter maybe be kind of early stage investors in, in something there needs to be certain conditions. I hope and I want to believe that certain companies will be able to make that transition. But You said something uh, earlier and you picked up on this idea multiple times, this notion that uh, you said something along the lines of you educated your colleagues and upper management on the virtues of doing X or on the necessity to do Y. What have you found works best in your world in terms of how do you approach this conversation? How do you actually make someone see the world as you see it that the big challenge i think the way we've done it i've always tried to get somewhere that is fairly close for them to, to make the link and of course it depends on people and when we were starting we had a really supportive executive team that understood and that's why they've created they understood that the environment is changing so we have to have something so that we're in the game i think one of the key conversations to have is what's the value and because uh, what's the value that is expected of either that specific project or idea that we're working on or of the innovation efforts in the first place the person defines values it shows me a lot about what they think what's important about them and then i can start bridging the conversation and saying okay so you are thinking for example well, we are we want market share growth okay so that's the most important thing now and how about in a few years time what do you think will happen and then you start to see okay whether there are some personal things in a few years time i won't be in this row or i'll be somewhere else which you need to to acknowledge or it might be simply that they are in this perennial thing of delivering now and then thinking um, uh, about the future but what's a value what drives this value 
what are the assumptions that your business is made and if you can touch upon some of those so one of the, um, the conversations that started people to think is pharma depends very much on payers and to control our price insurers and uh, to control our price we have to have clinical data what if in a world a few years down the road, somebody else has more data about our product and their efficacy than we do. What would we do? That's a major business risk. How likely it is? I don't know, but let's have a discussion. What would lead to a world like that? And, and I think linking it with something that they understand very well and showing how it can be swept under their feet usually helps to gain attention. What do you think are the major roadblocks or the, the stumbling stones you have when you try to do all the things you just described? What gets in your way? It's human nature. I mean, I can bow it down. It, it, is, it is human nature because I was thinking a lot about how do I get the executive team and my stakeholders to do exactly what you asked me before, see the what it could be and why we need to think about this and then of course there are all the trends and things i thought but then there is also something about the way we need in a highly uncertain environment and and what it takes to deal with this uncertainty where the things that made you successful is no longer may not be the thing that will continue to make you successful so I was, I was interviewing for this uh, General Stanley McChrystal, and I really loved what he said. You know what? When I was sent in Iraq, if I had done the job that my predecessor was doing this similar way, I was 100% sure my career won't suffer. Anything different that I tried to do, I knew it's going to be my face on the cover of the magazine. And, and that's from a CEO in this case, general point of view. But the, then it goes down to each one um, of us, if I allow that thing to speak to that new unit, to speak to our customers, that would mean problem for me. And people are afraid. So it's fear in some form of fear. And then you start with the regulations and you can't do that and the risks, but it's, it's fundamentally fear. How do you overcome that? It's so different. So when we started, for example, the unit was very new and HIV is a very delicate topic. What I mean is that because of the stigma, you have to be very careful about how you talk, how you relate. And, and at the same time, we can't succeed unless we're in direct conversation with people living with HIV and the physicians. So certain parts of the business were super nervous about that and what would happen. So first of all, we established really good connections and a lot of communication and trying to understand rather than saying, oh, why are they doing that? It's like, yeah, I know why you're doing that. And I've been there. So let's see how we can work together. A lot of everything that goes out of a pharma company needs to be approved, at least in Europe, but in the US as well. So I made sure that with the people who approve this, we have face-to-face -face or on the phone, not via email, so that they can see how we work. That's one of the ways. The other thing is really, to, if, if you can influence, who are those people who are the decision makers or governance people, if you can choose those that can think in first principles, because very often they'll tell, no, you can't do that well. 
the question is not like, can I or not? How can I? And which parts are absolutely not because that's the regulation and which parts are because you think it is so. And let's have a conversation. We were very clear that we need these type of kind of governance support team. I love the building of alliances. I love the fact that you went on the, got on the phone or in the, in the room. I think it's so important to, the conversation becomes very different, right? Like the moment it's not email, the moment it becomes an actual face, an actual person. And um, the moment you show you know what they try to protect and you say, yes, I get it. Mm -hmm. Let's see. I mean, that's how I'm approaching. I think that the skill to acknowledge, and it's not just an innovation in pharma general, <laughs> to acknowledge what the lawyer or the regulatory person is protecting the real yeah. thing because they may say one thing, but the real risk. And, and then they relax. They see, okay, you understand. Let me ask you a last question. This is my, my, my <laughs> typically my closing question, which is how bullish are you? you? You've been in large corporations and I know that you are now thinking about what's next for you. Do you think large corporations can do this? They can actually be successful in this, in this world of quote unquote disruption? I, I think with the right conditions they can and the right conditions for me it literally comes down to to the ceo and how they uh, choose their leadership team and how they choose to define their business where they are in their tenure i mean actually what it comes down for me is is disruption or being different in the future and and changing the way business is done is that part of your strategy or not if that's part of the strategy of the business, oh, absolutely they can. If that's not, if that's something we have to do it so that we don't miss out or because everybody does it, then it's not going to happen. So for me, that that's it. it. It shouldn't be something on the side. It should be the way we think about our future business. Yeah. On these wise words, Christina, I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. This was super inter interesting, super insightful. Also love the fact that you brought a very different perspective to this coming from a regulated industry, which I typically don't operate in and or talk all that much about. Mm. Um, and really fascinating for me to see how much of the, even in a regulated industry where you would think, well, things are different somewhat, it feels to me the opportunities and the challenges we face are very, very similar, if not the exact same as in a non-regulated industry, you just have a different playing field to operate in. So thank you again. This was super awesome. I loved it. And I personally wish you all the best for whatever is next. I can't wait to see what you're going to do. <laughs> so with that being said, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Hey, it's Pascal. Thanks for tuning in on this episode of Disrupt Disruption. If you want more, check out the other episodes we have on this podcast. Also know that this is part of an effort of us writing a book about disruption. So uh, keep your eyes and ears peeled towards that. And if you liked it, do us a favor. Go on your podcasting platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, whatever it is, and just like this. Um, there's some weird algorithm thing, which, you know, if you like it, they will like us. So do me a favor, do that. And if you've got any questions, any comments, anyone I should talk to, drop us an email. Um, easiest email address for me to reach it is P, just the letter P, at finet.com. With that being said, thank you so much for listening and I will hear you here soon.